Von Balthasar said that the best prayers are those that we can imagine having been on the lips of Christ. And when Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, the first word out of his mouth was the word our, as in our Father. So we're encouraged to pray prayers that arise out of the heart of the church. A prayer that arises out of the heart of the church, Von Balthasar wrote, quote, would not revolve around an isolated subject, but around one who, as a member of the church, who lives in and for an ecclesial mission, is praying for the necessary grace to fulfill it, for purity and courage, for clarity and trust, for understanding and selflessness, for everything needed by a person who, through his life and example, would like to be an apostle of Christ. In other words, if we want to think with the mind of the church, we have to learn to pray with the heart of the church. Summarizing all that in simpler terms, Von Balthasar said, we worship God not in order to be a separate and stagnant pond, but to let ourselves be channeled into the place where his kingdom has need of us and his will makes use of us. So I would like to have that be our prayer for today and for our other sessions as well, that we may be channeled into the place where his kingdom has need of us and his will makes use of us. Just as I agree with Joseph Ratzinger that the greatness of the liturgy depends on its unspontaneity, I agree with the philosopher Eric Vogelin that the test of truth is its lack of originality. Ours is not a liturgical gathering, and by sticking reasonably close to my prepared remarks, I will probably help refute any accusation of spontaneity. So out of step with the contemporary zeal for originality is my commitment to unoriginality, however, that it may strike some as original by comparison. So I'll try my best to exonerate myself of this charge by quoting sources more authoritative than myself as often as the opportunity presents itself, beginning with an eminently authoritative source, the Gospel of Luke, from which we derive the theme for this month which is the present time. Jesus says, quote, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say immediately that it is going to rain, and so it does. And when you notice that the wind is blowing from the south, you say it is going to be hot, and so it is. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The present time to which Jesus was referring was the incomprehensible breaking in on fallen humanity of God in Christ. That was the event that Jesus' contemporaries could not fathom. And that event is still underway, and it remains almost completely unfathomable to our contemporaries, and largely inexplicable even to those of us who affirm it in faith. Now, as ever, the task is to come to grips as best we can with the earth-shaking meaning of the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, and to place ourselves in the service of the Trinitarian God revealed in these events. Now, to take the measure of the present time, we have to understand that the absolute center of human history is the inbreaking of Christ into history. But precisely because it's a central event, there's an enormous amount of cultural and historical processes that are profoundly affected by it and that react to it positively or negatively. We have to understand all these processes, to understand what's happening in the present time. So it's important that we understand history and culture.
Christians, especially Catholic Christians, acknowledge the role that their own cultural heritage plays in shaping their moral and spiritual formation and in awakening and refining the sensibilities required for a lively and robust participation in the sacramental life of the church. Culture matters. It helps shape us. Evangelization, therefore, aims not only at the conversion of the heart, one heart at a time, which is the only real form of conversion, but it requires as well the Christianizing of the culture. History and culture are not Christianity's abiding home, but they have an enormous influence on a Christian's ability to recognize that fact and to come to grips with its meaning. Once the leavening influence of Christianity has tempered and tinged a culture with its moral and spiritual vision, and to the degree that it has, that culture will help supply the vocabulary, the dramatic motifs, the conceptual tools, with the aid of which the faithful can more readily think with the mind of the church and pray with the heart of the church. The Christianizing of a culture, which is required by the Christian vocation, will always encounter opposition. Remember in John's gospel, every time Jesus goes into a village, the village is doing fine. He shows up, he gives a little homily and cures somebody of something or other, and he leaves, everybody's fighting. Everybody's in conflict. In other words, he brings controversy because something is revealed. It upsets the status quo, and we have to assess who was he? What was he all about? And history is nothing but this. What is this thing that's happening to us? What is it that has suddenly broken in and destabilized the world? And the arguments then break out. So Jesus, in a sense, precipitates a kind of culture war. This is what Hans Urs von Balthasar calls the basic Christological law regarding the history of the church and the world. Namely, quote, that there is an ever-intensifying no to the yes uttered by God in Christ, end quote. Von Balthasar calls this the law of the reciprocal intensification of the yes and the no. The world, and I'm using the word world here in quotation marks, there's a piece of it in your heart and mind. The world is always going to try to reject the gospel. The world does not want to be inconvenienced by it. The world would like to maintain the status quo. That is always going to be the case. And as von Balthasar points out, it's going to be ever more the case. If you read the New Testament and you think that things are going to get better and better, read it again. That's not what it said. Christ said that things are going to get worse and worse, which is to say there's a reciprocal intensification of the yes and no. As the Christian revelation breaks in, the attempt to reject it will intensify and intensify. This is what history is all about. So the world will always be trying to get rid of the gospel. And we should have a little bit of compassion on our brothers and sisters who are trying to get rid of it. Because on our bad days, so are we. But on our good days, when we're actually trying to proclaim it, we have the better part in this drama. The people who are stuck with the task of trying to get rid of it, no good comes of it for them. You see what I mean? And there's no reason why they got stuck with that role and we got stuck with the good one. We don't deserve to have a good one. Faith is a gift. We have to play our role in this drama, but we shouldn't be too snooty about the people that are playing the other one. It's not a very good role, and they don't deserve to be playing it any more than we deserve to be playing the good role. You see what I'm trying to say? We have to have a little charity. If it weren't for the no, what would happen to our faith? 
it would dry up. The world's no forces us to reach down into that inexhaustible treasury of Christian resource and pull up a yes that's big enough to encompass the no. Not just big enough to defeat it, but big enough to encompass it. Big enough to convert as much of it as possible. We have to come up with a yes that's much bigger than the no. Now, the world will always be failing to get rid of the gospel. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The world will always fail in that. But the failures may be catastrophic. The failures may be of the kind that we saw in the 20th century. Millions and millions of people die under the two major ideological scourges of the 20th century. Uh, so these attempts to get rid of it will fail, but they can cause a horrible catastrophe. But as they fail, the world doesn't give up on its effort to get rid of the gospel. It concocts a new formula for doing so. And it always concocts a formula that appeals in some way to the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age changes. So when Paul says, be not conformed to the spirit of the age, it's very important that we update that all the while. It's not enough to be not conformed to the spirit of the age just before this. That's the easiest falling off a log. Everybody does it. What we have to do is be not conformed to the spirit of this age. In order to do that, we have to understand the spirit of this age to realize how much our whole thinking apparatus is infected with the spirit of this age. The world's attempt to expel the gospel is predictable and far less alarming than the widespread Christian indifference to that attempt. Our task as Christians is to present Christ to the world. So in some ways, we're doing exactly what John the Baptist does in the beginning of John's gospel. John pointed to Christ and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's our task. Our task is to do what he did. Now, I was introduced in Cambridge the other night, and the person introducing me said, well, every once in a while he does these Monty Python things. So I'm going to do a little bit of a Monty Python thing here about John the Baptist saying there's the Lamb of God and the disciples of John going over to try to encounter him. In my Monty Python version, Christ sees them coming, and he thinks to himself, now, I'm going to quote to you from a little book of von Balthasar called The Heart of the World, where Christ is contemplating how he's going to break the news to humanity that he has come to reveal. And here's what von Balthasar says. And now there he stood, he, Christ, there he stood at the edge of their land. How was he to go over the border to them? In which language would they be able to understand his message? They will have to take offense at him. They will turn everything around. They will understand his sayings and his discourses as a new morality and a plan to improve the world. And in his example, they will see nothing but a teacher of religion. End quote. They will have to miss the point. They're not capable at this point of getting it. So they'll interpret him as someone who bringing a new morality, a plan to improve the world, or a teacher of religion. If you ask most people in the street today what they think of Christ, the answers would fall into those three categories by and large. So that's what's going on in Christ's head. In my Monty Python version of this encounter of John's disciples in Christ, what's going on in the disciples' head is the fear of embarrassing themselves in front of the important rabbi. They're concerned that they're going to look stupid. So they work up a little talk, a little something, so that they won't embarrass themselves in front of the rabbi. So they, it's like maybe they'll ask a, a, a scriptural question or some profound theological question. They work up a little speech 
Then they go over and they're just about to say this little speech they've practiced when Christ turns to them and says, what do you want? Oh, my gosh. What do you want? Now, you could you could inflect that in different ways. You know, what what do you really want or uh, what do you want or how you do it? But in any event, it catches them off guard. And they so they're flustered. They forget the little speech. And one of them blurts out, where do you live? What a ridiculous thing to say. He must have immediately thought, oh, I wish I could take those words back. It's totally embarrassing. How banal. Where do you live? I mean, what you have to remember is this is John the Evangelist writing the story. So in a way, this is the question. The question is, where do you abide? And the answer is, in my Father's will. But then you're into the Trinity. These guys are not ready for the Trinity. So... What does he say to them? They blurt out, where do you live? And he says, come and see. Come and see. That's the only way. It's so dumbfounding, so profound, and we're so unprepared for it in our fallen condition. There's only one way, and that is to be in his presence. You see, he's not going to waste words on them. Come and see. Be in my presence. Slowly, 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 the nickel will start to drop. But it's only under those circumstances. Be in my presence. How can we be in his presence? Well, we could have been born 2,000 years ago and happened to have been in Palestine at the time. But it probably wouldn't have done us any good. We would have been among the people arguing in those little villages as he went through in John's gospel. I often say that Mother Teresa knew him better than Bartholomew. It's not a matter of having seen him in the flesh. People who saw him in the flesh didn't get it either. How can we be in his presence? The Eucharist, of course. Prayer, of course. See? Meditation, contemplation, all of these things are ways of being in his presence. But fundamentally, it comes to that. It's only that that wears down this enormous resistance we have to who he is and what he has come to reveal. The question is, in which language is he going to speak to them? And the answer has already come out when he said, come and see he doesn't speak in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. He speaks in the flesh. He has a word to speak, a logos. He is the logos. You know, Marshall McLuhan says the medium is the message. He is the message. The message is a person. Christianity is not one of the religions of the book. We say that because we want to be in dialogue with Jews and Muslims. But Christianity is not a religion of the book. It's a religion of the person. The language he speaks is the language of the flesh. He speaks an anthropological language, if you will. He wants to show us what it's like to live in fidelity to the Trinitarian God as human beings, which is our calling. In so doing, Christ throws down the ultimate challenge. And to refer to a silly but entertaining movie, he says to fallen humanity, analyze this. Analyze the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection for the next several thousand years, which is precisely what we're doing. That's why we we're here this afternoon. Well, they follow him around. They stay with him. They come with him. After a while, though, you see, it's time for him to go to Jerusalem but to take care of business there, which is the supreme revelation that he's come to bring to us. And, of course, the disciples aren't ready for this, but he has to push them a little bit to prepare them for it because he can't take any more time with them. So he takes them out to a pagan area, Caesarea Philippi. It's a Gentile area. 
And there in that location, he says to them, who do the people say that I am? They're ever so happy to have that question. Finally, he's asked them a question they think they can answer. You know, It's a little bit of a confidence builder. You know, It's a question they feel good about. And so they're very eager to say, oh, yeah, well, we, we know the answer to that question. He said, who do the people say you are? We know all about that. They say you're John the Baptist or Jeremiah or one of the prophets or something like that. So I'm going to leave the Caesarea Philippi story there and just ask the question about the question. Why did he ask that question? Why did he ask what everybody was thinking? Was he turning the disciples into a little focus group to see how his ministry was going? Of course not. Did he care what people were thinking? Didn't he already know and so on and so forth? Why did he ask him that question? Well, I'm going to suggest that he asked him that question because before he got to the next question, which is the big question, he had to clear their minds of the spirit of the age. And in order to clear their minds of the clutter that comes from the spirit of the age, he had to get them to name it. So, for example, if a professor on a university campus takes his undergraduate's first day of class and he says, make a list of the five most powerful ideologies circulating on this campus, things that everybody believes, nobody questions, everybody assumes is true, make a list of them. After listing them, the students would be to that extent disabused of them because they would have seen them objectively. They would have held them out there and looked at them. You see what I mean? And to that extent, they would have been freed from them. And I think something like that is going on here. It's the only explanation, seems to me, for Jesus asking that question. So in the spirit of that question, I want to take a few minutes and talk about the spirit of our age and how we have to understand the spirit of our age because in order to say the yes to the world's no, we have to understand something about the nature of that no. So I'm going to take a few minutes to do that. The question is, what are the contemporary historical and social currents against which Christians must swim if we're to meet our evangelical responsibility? I want to talk about two things. One is the spiritual and moral vacuum that is left by the weakening of Christian influence in Western civilization. That's the first topic. The second topic is the reactionary forces that are filling the vacuum. The vacuum left by the de-Christianization of Western civilization and the reactionary forces that are filling the vacuum. Hansers von Balthasar, I've already quoted him a couple of times, took a look around Europe in the middle of the second half of the 20th century. And he said, quote, we are experiencing the drastic practical results of the loss of meaning. And above all, we are realizing how the loss of the religious dimension in the social sphere makes it difficult for the individual to experience it as a reality in his own life. In other words, culture matters. It's not a question of me taking my little pristine faith off to some little cubicle someplace and thinking that it will thrive under those circumstances. It requires that communication with the culture. And if the culture becomes toxic to it, it has an effect on individual faith and piety. That's what von Balthasar is saying. The political philosopher Robert Cranach in the late 20th century said, quote, we are presently in a temporary period of stability 
in which immersion in middle-class careerism, creature comforts, and high-tech gadgets diverts people from the abyss of nihilism in the surrounding modern culture. So we have these distractions to keep us from realizing that the center has imploded. And finally, the Australian theologian Tracy Rowland in the early years of the 21st century looked around and made a similar observation. She said, some moral and social practices are so dysfunctional that those who participate in them retard their potential to develop as moral persons. She goes on, but let me repeat that. Some moral and social practices are so dysfunctional that those who participate in them retard their potential to develop as moral persons, and such morally retarding practices are dominant in modern institutions, end quote. In other words, culture matters. As what Cranach calls the abyss of nihilism becomes more apparent and people begin to sense a kind of Weimar Republic moral meltdown with no points of reference more stable than the culture of rights and the fickle winds of mass culture. An appeal by ideological Pied Pipers becomes more compelling. Cranach, again, Robert Cranach, he wrote this before 9-11. He would probably change his estimation a little bit as a result of that event. But he says, once economic recessions prick this bubble, or the inner emptiness of the present holding pattern becomes unbearable, we could see the void of atheistic humanism being filled by waves of strange New Age religions and doomsday cults mixed with environmental pantheism and science fiction, end quote. He might change the diagnosis a little bit today based on uh, updated a little bit, but nevertheless, it's a pretty sobering observation. Cranach is no crank. He's a very respected political philosopher from Colgate. That book was published by Notre Dame Press. Now, Robert Cranach warns about, quote, the corrosive skepticism of liberalism carried by the culture of rights and the leveling effect of mass democracy, end quote. In a few minutes, I'm going to do a tiny little sidebar on the rhetoric of rights not in order to abandon what the rhetoric of rights was designed to protect, but in order to protect it better than the rhetoric of rights is protecting it. So it's important for us to recognize some of these rhetorical things that are now very much part of our conversation, uh, which have problematic consequences. I'll return to that in a minute. Cranach concludes, quote, the hierarchical traditions and institutions of the past now, maybe I should do a little bit of a sidebar on the word hierarchy. We've been taught to hold our nose when we hear the word hierarchy. But hierarchies, as I hope to show with some reference here to Shakespeare, are necessary and inevitable. The world is hierarchically structured if we believe that beauty is more important than ugliness, that truth is more important than lies, that goodness is better than evil and banality and so on. So the hierarchical nature of things is simply there. The question is, do we order our world, our social world, with regard to these hierarchies, or do we abandon them to total chaos? That's uh, the question. So, And Cranach is perfectly aware of this problem, anthropological cultural problem that has to do with the de-Christianization of Western civilization. He says, quote, 
the hierarchical traditions and institutions of the past served as checks and restraints on the democratic soul, repressing the lower impulses toward instant gratification and self-expression and nurturing higher parts of the soul, the parts that require greater patience and depth of feeling, as well as more dignified and decorous behavior than are commonly found in pure democracies, end quote. So the reason democracy is working is because we're living on the accumulated capital of hierarchical structures and institutions to which we still order our lives in some way that predate the democratic experiment. Whereas if the leveling effect of a pure democracy takes effect, these things will continue to deconstruct and we'll live in a world that has no points of orientation at all. The pagan world depended as much as we do on hierarchical traditions and institutions, but the hierarchies and institutions to which Cranach so positively refers are ones that have been deeply influenced by Christian moral imperatives and principles. You can have a hierarchy that's a completely unjust and tyrannical hierarchy. You can have a hierarchy that's arbitrary, and you can have a hierarchy that's perfectly benign or one that's quite positive. It's better to have a bad one than not to have any at all. That's why in the ancient world, people said, look, let's just have the firstborn son be the king when the king dies, because it's better to have some inbred idiot as king than to have a civil war every time the king dies. In other words, it's better to have an unjust, stupid hierarchy than to try to live without hierarchy. It's a whole lot better to have a just and beneficial hierarchy, you see, than to have an unjust one. But ancient societies understood that these things are absolutely essential. Now, the cultural anthropologist René Girard has made the same assessment that Cranach has made. For example, when he says, quote, the gradual erosion of every social hierarchy has plunged the modern individual deep into ever more extreme oscillations of desire and resentment. And Girard wrote a book on Shakespeare, best book on Shakespeare ever written, by the way, if you're interested in it. And he sees Shakespeare as among the first and certainly among the best interpreters of the modern crisis. And nowhere more powerfully does Shakespeare do this than in a little speech in Troilus and Cressida. I'm just going to refer to a very few lines of that speech. The Greek camp has fallen into disunity and conflict. The warlord Agamemnon has been challenged by one of his lieutenants, and now there's all kinds of chaos. It's a small culture that's falling apart. Ulysses, really Shakespeare, is analyzing the crisis. And for Shakespeare, of course, he's not analyzing the crisis in the ancient world. He's analyzing the crisis at the beginning of the 17th century in the West. Now, Shakespeare uses the term degree. And by degree, what he means is the same thing that Cranach means when he talks about hierarchical traditions and institutions which repress the lower impulses and nurture the higher parts of the soul. I'm quoting Cranach. That's what Shakespeare means by the word degree. Those things that repress the lower impulses and inspire the higher ones. In other words, that lift us, inspire us to be better, fuller, more alive, more decent charitable, kind human beings. Ulysses says, when degree is shaken, which is the ladder of all high designs, the enterprise is sick. 
take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere opugnancy. There's nothing but conflict and rivalry. It's not as though we're trying to aspire to something truly noble. We're just trying to outdo our rival. It becomes petty rivalry rather than an aspiration for something truly transcendent. If you take away the ladder of all high designs. So it's an absolutely brilliant insight into the crisis that Shakespeare can already see at the beginning of the 17th century. He says, if we do that, the bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shore and make a sop of all this solid globe. It's an absolutely apocalyptic image of what happens if we eliminate these hierarchical understandings of things, these things that inspire us to greatness that are the ladder of all high design. If we live in a world where the nuptial act is regarded as legally and morally indistinguishable from a homosexual attempt to replicate it, or a world in which Caravaggio is equal to what? The crucifix in the jar of urine, or to Marcel Duchamp's urinal, or something like that. A world in which we have no orientation, we have no way of saying what is excellent and beautiful and true and good. It's just like everything else. You see, it's a chaos. These things are now happening in the world we live in. And we're so close to it, and we're so busy and preoccupied with other things, we don't notice. But these people who get paid for noticing have been calling our attention to it. And I'm just trying to be their water carrier here. Now, this is going to end with good news. But we have to first take the measure of the spirit of the age and how it infects our own thinking. The centripetal forces fracture the social covenant and the moral consensus that's essential to it. And as this happens, ideological panaceas become more appealing to those succumbing to this abyss of nihilism. Contrary to the way in which we tend to describe the current situation, the contest that's going on today, regardless of how it's described, is a struggle between cultural traditionalist and cultural reactionary. The latter reacting against the cultural influence of Christianity, and in doing so, their claims to progressivism notwithstanding, are returning to a pagan anthropology. So we need to change our vocabulary a little bit to understand what's happening. It's a contest between cultural traditional and cultural reactionary. To draw out of the Christian tradition is not to be stuck in the past. It is to be in touch with that tradition that is ever ancient, ever new. So when I use the word traditionalist, I'm not talking about the people who want to go back to some pristine thing in the past. Absolutely not. That tradition teaches us how to enter into the new. So the lens through which to view these developments is an anthropological lens. It clarifies things that are completely muddled if we look simply through the lens of popular culture or the lens of politics or economics or sociology or psychology or something like that. So the lens through which to view these developments is an anthropological one, which is to say a biblical one. For it is in the Bible that we get humanity's first really lucid forms of anthropological thought. At the heart of biblical anthropology is a profound sense that the most irrefutable indicator of humanity's return to pagan idolatry is the return to child sacrifice. That's very profound in the Hebrew scripture. If you want a little indicator telling you you've reverted to pagan idolatry, 
It is if there is a return to child sacrifice. I'm going to call our attention to three ideologies that are filling the vacuum left by the retreat of Christianity from Western civilization. And I'd struggle to name these appropriately. The first, I'm going to call it Islamic fascism. It's probably not the best term, but I've tried several. Nothing quite seems to work. But let me specify, it's the one that trains small children to strap on bombs and kill themselves in order to kill Jews and their crusader allies, quote-unquote. That strapping of the bombs onto these children is child sacrifice. If we look at this anthropologically, through an anthropological lens, not an ideological lens, not a political, not a geopolitical, not an international, but anthropological lens, to return to child sacrifice. This ideology is fully capable of horrors on the scope of or greater than the horrors that were brought on the world by the great ideologies of the 20th century, fascism and communism, fully capable of that and having a very profound effect these days, especially in Europe. I was in England this summer. The icon for the interfaith chapel at Heathrow Airport is of someone in an Islamic praying position. That tells you something about what's happening in Great Britain and in Europe today. And George Weigel tells me he saw the same icon for the chapel at the Ottawa airport a couple of months ago. It says something about what fills the vacuum when Christianity leaves it open. The second ideological scourge, again, I struggle with this one. I'm going to call it libido liberalism. I've struggled with this. In earlier sessions, I called it the Margaret Sanger, Alfred Kinsey liberalism. But then I thought, well, no, it should be called the Margaret Mead, Margaret Sanger, Alfred Kinsey liberalism. But as this process went on, I realized that its contributors were legion. And I abandoned the approach, figuring it would take too much explaining on my part or too much Googling on the part of everybody else. Uh, so I had to come up with something else. So I'm calling it libido liberalism. And the reason I want to distinguish it from liberalism as such is because however one might quibble with the social and political liberalism of an earlier age, it represented a respectable argument about how to order our common life. And its proponents could use the phrase social responsibility with a straight face. The liberalism that poses a graver threat today, inasmuch as it is playing fast and loose with some of culture's most indispensable institutions and tradition, is the liberalism I'm calling libido liberalism, a reactionary anthropology deeply dependent, as its advocates correctly insist, on an unlimited abortion license, which is to say, on child sacrifice. So again, we have something posing as progressivism seen through an anthropological lens. It's reactionary. And finally, again, what do you call it? I'm calling it the Faustian project of the new eugenics. Nobody's ever going to call it the attempt to create the master race because that term has been entirely discredited thanks to Hitler. But there's something of it going on today, and the tools for accomplishing it are virtually in place. There's some very, very troubling things going on. It's not long before you'll be able to go online and assemble a genetic prototype for the offspring that you want. The only thing is 
that a whole lot of little tiny human beings are going to have to be created and thrown out in order to come up with precisely the specification required. Uh, so what's that? Child sacrifice. There are actually two gods involved in this one, two pagan gods, another return to the pagan world. Again, the value of an anthropological analysis. Uh, one is Moloch, the pagan god of child sacrifice, and the other one is Mammon, the pagan god of avarice. As for Moloch, the pagan world was perfectly confident in its universal assumption that good fortune and blessings were forthcoming from the gods in response to sacrifice, blood sacrifice, and in the case of Moloch and the gods of his ilk, human sacrifice, and especially child sacrifice. Child sacrifice brought benefits. A form of this logic is at work in the new Faustian projects, namely those which manipulate and cannibalize and dispose of embryonic life in a quest for technologies that will ostensibly at least bring copious blessing on those willing to avert their attention or even tolerate the sacrificial procedures that will bring these blessings. As for mammon, Jesus is overturning of the money changers' tables in the courtyard of the Jerusalem temple shows that the sacrificial shrines in antiquity were often the commercial centers of their respective societies. Today we are developing the technological toolkit for using human beings, very tiny one, not to make lampshades, but as raw material, as a pool of genetic options from which those unfit by standards other than God's would be eliminated. Those who think that this isn't a return to pagan anthropology just because the sacrificial event is invisible and unceremonious are not looking closely enough. Libido liberalism and Faustian eugenics share an underlying anthropology, you might call it the atheism of the body, in contrast to John Paul's The Theology of the Body, and each is driven by an agenda, an agenda that involves a radical reconfiguration of the social order, so radical that the agenda itself must be concealed from any whose political consent might be necessary for its success. Under the circumstances, to be successful, a reactionary ideology of the sort I just described will need to employ a vocabulary that is not only progressive, but a vocabulary with which mutually incompatible traditions are likely to resonate, and therefore upon which they seem to agree, even though each tradition defines their mutually agreed upon terminology in profoundly different ways. These traditions, for instance, use the word person, or the word nature, or the word rights, or the word freedom, and they mean radically different things by it. Both the timid trying to convince themselves that all is well, and the ideologues who exploit their timidity are now using terms designed to minimize the meaning of this massive reconfiguration of Western civilization. Terms like tolerance and diversity and inclusion serve to paper over the very real disintegration of the broad moral and social consensus that once made this culture so remarkably resilient. All these things, tolerance, diversity, and inclusion, and so on, 
are very respectable principles worthy of implementation, but their recent use is more a symptom of moral indifference than of the cultural generosity it purports to be. These terms are unwittingly used by the naive and timid to avoid pressing cultural, moral, social, and political decisions, and very deliberately employed by savvy ideologues to make these decisions by default in favor of their ideological agenda. Here, it's especially important to recognize the salience of what Tracy Rowland, the Australian theologian, says. This is absolutely essential. She says, it is part of the very nature of ideological projects that they exist for the rhetorical purpose of concealing ethical conflict. I want to read that again. That's absolutely essential for understanding what's happening today. It is part of the very nature of ideological projects that they exist for the rhetorical purpose of concealing ethical conflict. That's absolutely essential. Most of the terms now being used to assure those who use them of their fundamental agreement with all others who use them are terms that are saturated with Christian meaning. What has been happening since the late 18th century is that Christian terms and tropes have been taken over by movements unambiguously hostile to Christianity and used in ways seriously at odds with how Christians have traditionally used this terminology. Take, for example, Jesus' admonition, be like your Father in heaven, he who makes the sun rise on evil and on good, and who makes the rain fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Think about that challenge. Now compare that to someone who, when confronted with good and evil or righteousness and unrighteousness, shrugs and says there's no real difference between them. It's all depending on your perspective. Compare those two realities. You see what I mean? The God who sends his son on both the good and the evil and his reign on both the righteous and the unrighteous is one thing, but the shrug that says, well, there's no real difference between them is the spirit of the age we're entering into. What is lost when we move from a moral order inspired by one to a moral order inspired by the other? All three of the reactionary ideologies I've just mentioned have grown powerful precisely because each of them has found a self-representation in the face of which Christians and Christianized cultures feel caught in a double bind. Libido liberalism, for example, appeals to an empathy for victims. Inasmuch as it presents itself as the champion of a class of victims of sexual discrimination and scapegoating. And since scapegoating is something to which any well-formed Christian conscience has a moral aversion, this works. Not only does this strategy function to discredit the moral tradition that awakened the empathy for the victims in the first place, it's used to actively replace that tradition with a pagan one. Let me read to you, and I'm sorry to do this, but this is necessary for all this. I told you we had work to do. This is from last Thursday's press, Dateline London, quote, from the earliest primary grades, school children in Great Britain should be taught about homosexual relations, a government-funded education project said today. No Outsiders is the name of the project, a 28-month tax-funded research project funded by the government's Economic and Social Research Council is already functioning in 14 primary schools in Britain using books, puppet shows, and plays to teach children as young as five about, quote, the pleasures of gay sex, end quote. 
The project's costing British taxpayers 600,000 pounds a year and is being promoted in the schools under the rubric of combating homophobic bullying. Nobody wants to encourage homophobic bullying. You see what I mean? That appeals to us as Christians. But what happens when we buy into the vocabulary that's being used to do something else, to replace anthropological clarity with something terribly confusing? But let me mention the last two very quickly. Islamic fascism, by which many societies are now being besieged, disarm Christians because they actually do respect religious freedom and are reticent to criticize even the most unvarnished evil if in doing so they might be seen to be slandering the religion that the perpetrators of that evil cite as their moral warrant for committing it. You see what I mean? We don't want to do that. And there's something decent about that. But we have to understand how it's functioning, how it works, because of the vocabulary we've agreed upon. And finally, the Faustian New Eugenics Project has and will justify each and every one of its perilous experiments as an effort to prevent or alleviate suffering, a goal with which Christians are in such broad agreement that they are tongue-tied when it's time to speak for the unborn in their most vulnerable stage, whose lives will be sacrificed on a scale that would make the Aztecs blush and Herod's slaughter of the innocents pale by comparison. This ghoulish disregard for life in its most vulnerable embryonic stage is a moral oversight that history has repeatedly shown will further erode our respect for the dignity of life. All of these things are proceeding precisely because they have found a little key for paralyzing the Christian opposition to them. We are still in the world described in John's Gospel. When Jesus enters a village, conflict breaks out. There's a revelation breaking in on us, and at its heart, the world wants to go back to the pagan world. But in today's world, because Christianity created something like a bright future and a hope for the future and a sense of that sort of thing, today these reactionary returns to a pagan anthropology have to present themselves in progressive guise in order that their pagan revival not be recognized for what it is. The civilization that owes its existence to Christianity is now throwing off the only yoke that is easy and the only burden that is light. Hard yokes and heavy burdens await those who do such foolish things, as Jeremiah told his contemporaries centuries ago, and our contemporaries need to be reminded of this same thing. Alas, however, many of us have played it safe. Tracy Rowland puts it this way, in circumstances where public institutions are a site of war, of competing ethical traditions, the pragmatic approach for those who aspire to be upwardly socially mobile is to avoid strong identification with any of the contending traditions, or at least to be flexible about one's moral persona, supporting different traditions in different social contexts. The rhetoric of rights unwittingly provides pragmatic Catholics with a cover to conceal or make ambivalent their positions in circumstances where the cost of discipleship should be a willingness to defend the values of the civilization of love explicitly. So she mentions the problem that arises from what she calls the rhetoric of rights. 
Simone Weil, French mystic of the 20th century, said the notion of rights, which was launched into the world in 1789, proved unable because of its intrinsic inadequacy to fulfill the role we assigned to it. The role we assigned to it was to protect human dignity. And she already recognized in the middle of the 20th century, it had failed to perform that function for us. Why did it fail to perform that function for us? In a May 1999 article in the New York Times, Michael Ignatiev wrote a piece commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And in that he said, quote, Article 1 of the Universal Declaration enunciates rights, but it doesn't explain why people have them. A cloak of silence was thrown over the question of God, enabling people to pretend to share more than they actually do. Again, it's a question of the choice of language, which allows people to feel that their ethical concerns are identical. Now, Tracy Rowland says, the rights rhetoric is ideological. Its objective is to secure a social consensus in circumstances where there is no commonly accepted moral tradition by construing all human relations in contractual terms. Well, if you construe all human relations in contractual terms, you leave out all those people who are incapable either because of how tiny they are or of how debilitated they are uh, to enter into a contract. The Catholic philosopher Alistair McIntyre writes, quote, the dominant contemporary idiom and rhetoric of rights cannot serve genuinely rational purposes. We ought not to conduct our moral and political arguments in terms derived from that idiom and rhetoric, end quote. How could Christians who wrote and enthusiastically approved the UN Declaration of Human Rights have foreseen that they were embracing by default a jurisprudence of rights that would one day be used to enforce rights, such as the one that's emphasized all the time these days by the United Nations, namely reproductive rights, a paper-thin disguise for the right to kill children in the womb, or a myriad of other purported rights deeply antithetical to the moral tradition for which the rights discourse seemed at first to be the closest secular approximation. For instance, a recently issued 87-page document by the International Planned Parenthood, a worldwide provider of abortion, quotes this sentence from the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, quote, every human being has the inherent right to life, end quote. And it interprets that sentence in this way, every woman has the right to an abortion. Where's Orwell when you need him? If we look through an anthropological lens, the question is, are we moving in the direction of human sacrifice, especially child sacrifice? Where are we doing that? Anytime we're doing that, it's a reactionary ideology, no matter how much it calls itself progressive. If it's moving in the direction of child sacrifice, any person with a biblical anthropology, which is to say to think the way the ancient Jews thought, as soon as you see child sacrifice, you know you have reverted to a pagan anthropology, regardless of the progressive titles that are given to it. The confusions which the rights discourse fosters are not exclusively cultural, moral, and political. 
there are subtle personal and spiritual problems as well. Plato famously said, the regime of the city shapes the regime of the soul. Where the rhetoric of rights is the touchstone of social affairs and the cornerstone of jurisprudence, each thing meets in mere opugnancy, as Shakespeare said. Such a culture is spiritually toxic, especially for those trying to live a Christian life. For a social order based on constantly competing rights tends to foster an adversarial and defensive form of personal autonomy, corrosive of a shared sense of meaning and in sharp contrast to the Christian vocation to participate in the Trinitarian life of self-donation and the sacramental life of the ecclesial communion that is its earthly analog. And this brings us finally to the end of that little sidebar about what's happening in our culture and back to Caesarea Philippi with the disciples who've just been asked, who do the people say that I am? And after Jesus clears their heads of the spirit of their age, he comes to the big question. The big question is, who do you say that I am? And that's the ultimate question. Everything in our world today, if you peeled all the layers of it away at the bottom of the question, every story on CNN, every controversial event in our world, if you peel away all the onion layer, at the heart of it is that question. Because the driving force in human history is the inbreaking of the revelation of Christ and its effect, its destabilizing effect on business as usual on culture as usual, on the pagan impulses, and so on and so forth. Who do you say that I am is the question. So he finally poses it to them. And Simon, Simon, impulsive Simon, he's all over the map. He blurts out, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so stick a fork in him. He's done. He got it. You see what I mean? He got it. And Jesus says, okay, now let me explain. I have to go to Jerusalem, be tortured and killed. Simon says, wait a minute. That's not what I meant. I didn't see that. My idea of Messiah wasn't that. So Simon got it right, but he left out the cross. That's what we tend to do. Jesus said, there's a cross in my future. And in a way saying to Simon, Simon, there's a cross in your future. And there's a cross in your future. And there's a cross in my future. Christ tells us this. The church tells us this. This is part of the good news. Why is it good news? Because there's a cross in our future, whether we know it or not. And if we don't know it, and suddenly, oops, there it is, we might think we got the whole thing wrong. We say, wait a minute, how did this happen? This is not the way it's supposed to be. But Christ tells us there's a cross in your future. Not only is there a cross in your future, but when it comes, and there may be many, of course, when they come, that's your opportunity to participate in the Paschal drama. That's your opportunity to make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Not only are we forewarned, but we're taught that this is not the catastrophe that the world considers it to be, but it's the opportunity to step into that Paschal drama with Christ and be part of it. So this tremendously powerful what Jesus is revealing to Simon after Simon called him the Messiah. But I want to end by a little reflection on what Simon does when he says Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't offer an opinion. 
he makes a confession. So I'd like to draw a little distinction between these two things. An opinion can be offered by a spectator. And if so, the drama that he's witnessing is simply a melodrama. Standing off to the side, a spectator can offer an opinion about the melodrama. And it has no historical consequences and no ontological consequences, no consequence for the person himself. But when someone makes a confession, he or she becomes an actor in the drama. And it's not a melodrama. It's a theodrama. It's the great drama of the inbreaking of the Christian revelation in our world. And so what Peter does, he's still Simon now, but he gets the name Peter precisely because the confession, as opposed to a mere opinion, has such ontological consequences that his old name doesn't work anymore. Something new has happened to Peter. He's become a new person because he's made a confession. A confession makes us new. And not only does it make us new, it makes the world new. It brings something new into history. What did his confession bring new into history? The church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. So a confession, as opposed to a mere opinion, transforms the person who makes the confession and alters history by bringing the church freshly into the situation. Anytime we make a confession, we renew the world by renewing the church in the midst of it. And in the process, effect a profound change in ourselves, requiring perhaps a new name like Peter. An opinion alters neither history nor the life of the one who expresses it, while a confession is very likely to alter both, at least in some degree. Behold the Lamb of God, or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. These are confessions. And Peter's confession brings into the world the church. So for all of Simon's short-sightedness, his confession transforms himself and renews the world by bringing the church alive in it. Now, think about other confessions more recent in history. Think about John Paul II going to Poland and saying Mass in Poland when Poland was still under the communist heel. And in short order, the Soviet Empire fell apart. Think about Benedict XVI giving his Regenberg lecture, or even more powerfully, baptizing Magdi Alam, the most famous Islamic journalist in Italy, at the Easter Vigil Mass this last Easter. These are forms of a confession that change history, change the people involved. Now, when you and I have an opportunity and we can't create it, it comes to us. If and when we have an opportunity to make a confession, it will be in, a, in circumstances much more modest than these. Uh, but the same thing operates. We are changed. The world that's touched by that confession is changed. Think of the 16 Carmelite nuns in July of 1794 in Paris who were guillotined, going up to the guillotine, singing Laudate Dominum. And 10 days later, Rose Pierre was guillotined and the reign of terror was over. Things like that happen when people make confessions as opposed to simply offering their opinion.
when a situation calls for a confession, if we substitute an opinion, as in, this is only my opinion, then nothing will come of it. And we will have missed the opportunity to make a small difference. In short order, the apparent affirmation that the opinion produces will become perfunctory, habitual, indifferent, and finally vacuous, and the world will dispense with it. But without the flash of Christian illumination and moral clarity that comes from a genuine confession, the culture will remain in the dark and, as Benedict has said, lose its way in history. So our task is to replicate Peter's confession anytime we're given the opportunity to do so. So the question at the end is, how do we meet our responsibilities in that ongoing culture war that begins even as Jesus enters those villages in John's Gospel, where the world begins to organize itself in order to expel this so it can comfortably return to that pagan world, easy with things like child sacrifice and so on. There's that ongoing culture war, which has to do with the inbreaking of Christianity into the world. How can we behave ourselves as Christians appropriately, charitably, but firmly in such a context? I'll offer two things which I think are very helpful in this regard. Two of Benedict's closest theological friends in the late 20th century, one was Henri de Lubac, great French Jesuit, and the other is Hans-Urs von Balthasar. I've already mentioned him today, Swiss theologian with whom uh, Joseph Ratzinger was very close. De Lubac said, I pity anyone who learns their catechism against something. It's very tempting sometimes when we get scandalized by some of these things that are happening in our world. It's very tempting to learn our catechism against something. De Lubac said we shouldn't do that. It's a great gift. It's beautiful in and of itself. We don't want to learn it against something. But then de Lubac's friend, Hans Erzlund Balthazar, offers uh, this clarification. There is a boundary, he says, a limit to which a Christian can responsibly go in his or her dialogue with the world that's trying to reject Christianity. There's a limit to which we can go. And we should be generous in determining where that limit is. You know, we don't want to sort out the wheat and the chaff too quickly. We don't want to draw the line in the sand too quickly. But there is a limit. We can go. We can be charitable. But there is a limit. And von Balthasar says we can responsibly go there. But that marks the point at which we must say no. This no, however, he says, which classes the Christian as a confessor and if necessary as a martyr, is nothing less than an authentic continuation of the original yes. That's the key. Our no has to be palpably an authentic continuation of the original yes. That, I think, is the key to participating charitably and forthrightly and faithfully in the culture wars. What must be palpable to both our allies in that war and our adversaries 
is that one uttering the no is doing so as an act of obedience and in an effort to remain faithful to the original yes. You've been very kind. I'm going to end with a prayer. May the Lord support us all the day long till the shades lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then in his mercy, may he give us a safe lodging, a holy rest and peace at last. Amen. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work. Our work.